the meantime, if you would turn uh, to your Bibles, in your Bibles, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, we're also going to take a little stop off there in, in 2 Corinthians, so you'll probably want to find that because we're going to take a, a, a relatively large, large chunk there. Uh, we left off two weeks ago with... Um, with 1 Samuel chapter 7, I kind of want to go over again what, we, what happened there. If you'll remember with me, the Israelites have been brought into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise, and God has, has fulfilled all of, his, all of his promises to them, and yet the people have wandered after other gods, and they have uh, rejected the word of the Lord. And because they have done this uh, in various sins that we've already talked about, uh, God has removed his protection from them, and so God is rather distant from them at this time. It's sort of like a parent who, who has a kid that says, I don't need you anymore. And the parent says, okay, go ahead. We'll see how you fare on your own. And so the Israelites, we read, were lamenting after God for 20 years, calling out, but not with their whole heart. There came a moment, a time, where, where finally they were, they, were, they were at rock bottom. They, they, they hit it, and they were like, we need to change. Something needs, we need the Lord. And so in chapter 7, they turn to the Lord. Samuel says, if you're going to turn to the Lord with your whole heart, right? Not, not some of it, but all of it. If you're going to turn to the Lord and give him everything you are, then put away from yourselves all the foreign things, all the foreign gods, all the other things that you have been filling your lives with, just as Jack is talking, was talking about and what we were singing about this morning, all of the other things that we clutter ourselves up with, looking at the world and chasing its pleasures, put all of that stuff aside and seek the Lord only, and he will come and rescue you. He will come into your life. He will, he will change everything. And as Samuel's preaching this, and as they're all saying, yes, yes, we repent, the Philistines come to kill him, which is kind of funny. Because God was supposed to rescue them. And so they've gathered for worship and the Philistines have gathered for murder. And, and the Israelites are like, well, God, well, what's happening? And then you remember what happened? It says that God thundered. I think of this um, because I've read too many comic books. But if you've ever seen like the Hulk comic books or the Hulk movies where he like, smashes the ground or smashes and everything goes, makes that sound. Like, like, think of it like this. God comes into the midst of this army and and people are flying and, and there's just this great commotion and it says that the Lord thundered in their midst and they fled, they ran. The Israelites turn up, after, stand up after being you know, on their knees and praying and the Philistines are running because running they hear the noise and well, I guess we chase them and so they all take off and chase the Israelites. Now all of this is to accomplish a particular purpose, and I, I want us to have it. We have to have this. You have to have it cemented in your mind this morning. What God was doing with Israel, if anything magical and heartbreaking is going to come out of chapter eight, and so I want to spend a little bit of time with this. Now, remember, with me, this is the the world. You're about here. And Israel is here. Now this is kind of the world as it was in the ancient world. This is Egypt and you have Assyria and Babylon and, and you Ammon and Moab and all these other nations around here. This is, this is where all the action is, is happening um, in the western, near eastern and western world. Uh, and then God moves Israel into that spot in this little track of land right here. Sort of in the middle called the Fertile Crescent. 
in the middle of all of that action, God moves the, the people from making promises to Abraham, who didn't have any children, says that you're going to be a father of many nations. And then he, he speaks to his son and his son, and, and his son has 12 sons, and, and 12 children make a lot more babies, and so babies and babies, and you've got lots of people. And, and, and God brings them through Egypt and rescues them from Egypt and brings them out of the, out of the wilderness and into this land of promise, into the promised land. And, and what he does there is really cool. He gives all of the 11, 11 tribes their own section. So Simeon and Judah and Reuben and Benjamin and Ephraim, all these different tribes here have their own tract of land. And then in each one of these cities, the 12th tribe, the, the Levites, there's a Levite in all of these cities. So in each place where Israel is located, where these different people are located, they have a priest there who can teach them the word of God. Because over all of these, the, th- this area, there is no king. There's no centralized government. You know what no centralized government means, don't you? No taxes. Right? No taxes. Amazing. Somebody applauded that. That's wonderful. I feel your pain. Uh, and, so, and so there's no centralized government, which means there's no taxes. But what God has done is said is he said, I am your king and I will rule over you. And there will be, so you might think of this as sort of like states, and over them all, God is king, and God has given them a constitution, if you will. Uh, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Bible, where God outlines and lays out for them how they're supposed to deal with crime, and how they're supposed to deal with the sojourner, and how God visions, envisions justice, and how they're to, to deal with all these things, and how they're to worship him properly as the king and God over all of them. And he says, and because of this, you don't need right, kings who are exhorting taxes. You don't need kings who have standing armies. Why do you need armies when God thunders in the midst of your adversaries? Your sons and daughters don't go out to battle. They don't lose their lives in battle because God shows up and the Philistines flee. And all of this, God does. And he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse 46, he says, take to heart all the words which I am commanding you, I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to obey the word of this law. So this constitution, this government that, that God has built over these people with this, with this word, he says, if you take this into your heart, I will protect you. If you live according to my ways, I will preserve you. Now why? What is this all about? Is this because Israel is so special? Well, if we've been following along with the story, they kind of stink, right? I mean, they're hard-hearted, they're stiff-necked. We read this, 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 these two phrases are used of them all the time. It's not because Israel's so special, but because God wants to do something with them. And those are uh, three things I would note. First, there is a desire in God to have relationship with his creation. God has created all things, and he desires to have a relationship with it. In order for that to happen, there has to be some stipulations. For example, you might realize that God being holy and pure and upright in all of his ways, that he will never think a wrong thought or do a wrong act. But all things that are within him are what we call holy. He is separate. He is other. He is perfect. He is pure. And if he is to come into the presence of a people, then they must reflect that as well. And so he gives them the law. He tells them how to live because he wants to have relationship with them. God also wants and deserves worship and glory. So God has taken a people and he has 
despite all of their stiff-neckedness and, and disobedience, he has put them in this land, defeated all of their enemies before them. He stands over them as God, as, as God and king and protector, and he says, sing to me, praise me. Show me worship and glory and honor, and not just for your own sake, and not just for my own sake, but because God wants the nations to receive his light too. Imagine this. Remember that this is just a small tract of land, and you have Assyria up here, and Babylon over here, and Ammon over here, and Moab in Egypt, and you have all of these nations all around Israel that are worshiping false gods. And God says, I want to have a relationship with them. I want them to see that the ways that they live are false and foreign and garbage and that they're worshiping pieces of stone and wood and they're nothing. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to do do that by showing the world that there is a real God by blessing Israel and calling Israel to be a light, calling Israel to be salt, calling Israel to be a city on a hill that the world can look at and say, look at that little tiny piece of land. They don't have an army. They don't have a king, and yet no one can defeat them. They, they don't ask for loans of money. In fact, they have so much money, we have to go to them for loans. God blesses them. This is God's vision and God's desire for his people. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. Now, does this sound familiar? Anybody? Where do we see this? Eli, right? Exactly. We go back to chapter this. In fact, what's so, what's so ironic about the whole thing is the first time that God comes to Eli, remember that story? The first time God comes to Eli, is to, or comes to Samuel, is to do what? To say, I'm going to punish Eli because he put his children in charge and they stink. And he hasn't rebuked them. He hasn't done anything about it. And so what we see here is that Samuel is copying the ways that he learned growing up. Some of them good, but this instance, some of them not so good. In fact, we see here that he expounds upon Eli's sin. If you remember Eli's sin, Eli is a Levite, that's his house, and his children then are also Levites, and they become priests, which is appropriate. Now, they're bad priests, which isn't, but they're priests nonetheless, and that's what they should be. And yet, here, what do we read in verse 1? Samuel is old, and what does he do? He appoints his sons as judges. Now, if you remember with me from the book of Judges, just a a book or two back, that is something that no one is allowed to do. God is the only one who can call up judges and give them positions of authority like that. But Samuel has taken it into his own hands, and he has created a dynasty, as it were. Now I'm getting old, I can't handle all this stuff. I'm going to put my children in charge. This is not God's way. It is not God's will. And so he's not only taken Eli's sin and replicated it, but he has now expanded it. Which gives me two quick application points, two quick words. The first is a word to parents. The first being discipline your children for crying out loud. Bring the law of God against them. 
Show them what God's will is and don't make excuses for them. If you do, you hand them over to destruction. Now, uh, Samuel and Eli, both of them we are pictured throughout the scriptures as very good men. Good men. Uh, they are called upright and just. In fact, if, a chapter or so later, Samuel is about to die and he says, who can, who can say anything against me? And all the people are like, no, you are really good. You're a good guy. We, you're upright, upstanding, except for this one sin, this one flaw, which brought the downfall of Eli's house. And Samuel is going to bring the downfall of Israel. It is this. They loved their children more than they loved God. And if there is one sin that I have seen over and over and over again, I know I'm a young man, so maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I've been in ministry for 14 years and I've been in the church for longer than that. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Christians, you love God, but you love your children more. And it always, always, always brings destruction upon their lives. They will always take the level of commitment that you have to God And they, if it is strong, will amplify it. If it is mediocre, they will take it down lower. If you say church is important, but it's not everything, church to them will be non-existent. If you say God is important, but he's not everything, they will take it, and God will be less to them than than he is to you. Every single time I have seen it, time and time again. And if it is in your heart that your children hold God in the highest esteem, the only chance they have is to see you Hold God in the highest esteem. There's no other way. There's no other way. The second is a word to church members. And uh, I forgive me if you're not a member of this church. I hope you're a member somewhere or, or participating in church somewhere. And this isn't a particular problem we have, but it's something we always have to watch out for. And that is this. The elevation of people because of who their daddy is in positions of authority. Seen that over and over and over again. The family's influential in the church. The, the parents are really good Christians. Well, then, you know, we need this ministry or that ministry or we need a new deacon or we need a new elder. And, and look at who, well, we'll grab them and, and we'll bring them up, you know. They'll, they'll come along. They don't. They don't. It's so interesting to me, Acts chapter 6. You remember the story in Acts chapter 6? The churches, the elders, I mean, the, the, the elders and the apostles, they're just, they're overrun. There's, there's so much conversion going on that, that they need some help. And so they say, hey, John, you got a boy, don't you? Hey, Andrew, don't you have a son we could, we could put in charge? No, we don't see any of that, do we? What do they say? It says to the church, find amongst yourself men of good repute, men who are full of the Spirit and those who are full of wisdom, not who was, your, uh, who was your family. And so we need to be aware of that, and we need to guard against that, because I've seen that kill churches more than a few times. So we are in the situation here where God wants to do something glorious with Israel, uh, and yet we have a problem. Samuel has made the drastic error of putting his not-so-great children in positions of authority, what are the people of Israel going to do? Are they going to pick up the law and say, listen, the word of God stands above everybody. It stands above elders, it stands above preachers, it stands above deacons, it stands above all those people who are telling them what to do at home. It has, it was a little joke, no one caught it, it's okay. Thanks for the pity laugh, that was great. Um, The word of God stands above all of us, and you, I'm going to call you to account to it. Are they going to bring the word of God against Samuel and say, listen, the word of God stands against your sons. Get them in line and get them out of here. Are they going to even maybe even 
maybe, here's a crazy idea. Let's just go to God and say, God, what should we do about this situation? What will they do? Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said, behold, you're old. What a great way to start. (laughs) And it rhymes. I didn't catch it till just now. Behold, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they are not rejecting you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also now doing that to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who will reign over them. So what is their great idea with this crisis that is facing them? Well, let's look and see what Babylon's doing. Let's look and see what Moab's doing or Ammon's doing. Or, you know, hey, remember Egypt, that pharaoh way back there? He was great. Let's copycat him. It's, just, it's so ridiculous. You, you, you have this issue of, of, of corrupt leadership, and God has given you the answer to it. And so what do you do? You look at the world to find your solutions and you notice what, what Samuel's hurt by. Do you notice that? God identifies it. Is, is Samuel a zealous for God? Is he, is he hurt because the people are disobeying what God's will is? No, he says they're not, God says they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. This I, I, I point to you as the root of the, the issue behind loving your children more than you love God. The sin, certainly, that Samuel committed was putting his children in positions of authority that did not belong to them. But the root of that sin is much deeper, and the root is pride. The root is pride. That anyone would stand uh, as over the word of God, that's the root, pride. But God says they reject me, not you. Which I don't think, and, and, and your commentators, might, they, they argue, they quibble back and forth about this. And I know it's, uh, this is sort of my opinion, but it is my opinion, so take it for what it is, that they didn't mean to reject God. Nothing in the text really seems to point to the people intentionally rejecting God as king. Rather, it seems as though they're intentionally rejecting Samuel and his sons. And yet God says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Why? What's happening here? Their sloppy way of life. They're not living uh, consistently with the scripture. And so what they intended to do was replace bad rulers, but what they ended up doing was rejecting God. Now this uh, leads me to quick, three quick little, little notes, little freebies. Is it, oh, wow, that's not right. I am all over the place. Nope, I guess I didn't make a slide. Sorry, you just have to write them down. I swear I made a slide, though. No? Nope, no slide. Okay, my bad. First, beware making decisions without consulting God. You notice that here? The Israelites gather together, the elders, they gather around Samuel, and they say, Samuel, this is what we want. Where was their prayer? Where was their calling out to God? Where was the God, what, we, what should we do? When you're in the midst of a crisis, the temptation is to get in there and fix it. It's always the wrong way to go. Get on your knees and pray about it. 
That's the first step. Secondly, beware of making decisions in the midst of crisis. And this is what I love so much. I was having, we were talking about this just a, a little bit ago about how we often make plans and how God thwarts it every single time I have a really good plan laid out. God says, no, you don't. It's, no, you don't. And, and this, is, this is the way God is. And I think God does it. Like, I think, I think like, th- there's a sense in, in which God is waiting for me to make plans so he can mess them up. Because I think in messing up my plans, God shows me you didn't need to make plans, right? We, we just need to, in fact, what did you, what did you say? What was it? Is it something, I'm just going to decide to put on shoes today. Is that what? I could choose any pair of shoes I want. That's my decision today. I love that. That's great. It's fantastic. Because the world can be going nuts, and it sure is these days, isn't it? Man, the election cycle has just been just so much fun this year. Like, it's just craziness out there and 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 people are going crazy there's all kinds of insanity and there always will be there'll be next year and the year after that and the year after that the only chance the world has to see faith is to see faithful church see people living faithfully we don't have to be worried we don't have to make decisions in times of crisis that's what's happening there's a crisis there's a bad leader we got to get in there we got to fix it let's do it right now get on your knees pray and wait god will move when the time is right Thirdly, beware of letting wicked people determine what is happening and what should happen. There's something, these, these wicked men are in power and we need to do something about it. We need to get in there. We need to fix it right now. We need to do it. And, and, and so instead of focusing on what God's word is and what God might be doing and what God is trying to accomplish, they focused in on the, the wicked men and that problem. And so they've lost sight of the larger picture. Don't let crises, 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 thank you, Laura, crisis, whatever. You know what I'm saying. Don't let those times of crisis dictate your actions. But so root yourself in a life that is devoted to relationship and worship of God. That when the time of crisis comes, you are the one person in the room who is unconcerned. Who, who, isn't, who isn't in turbulation, isn't, isn't crazy about it. Now, what happens because of all of this? They decide to, and look at your Bible there in verse chapter, or chapter 8, verse 4, you might even, or 5, sorry, verse 5. You might even want to underline it. It's at the very end of there. Give us a king to judge us like all the nations. And because they've abandoned those things that I just talked about, what have they done instead? They've looked at the world around them, and they've said, let's do what they're doing, because they're so successful at it. <laughs> That's another joke. Copying the world is the most disastrous thing any Christian can ever do. What happens when your uh, family is in crisis? Where do you go? Where do you turn? What happens when your children are driving you nuts and you don't know what to do about them? Where do you go? Who do you turn to? What happens when, you're, when your job is in, is in turmoil? Uh, where do you go? Who do you turn to? How do you, how do you fix that problem. When we look at the, our lives and say, how should we live our lives and, and what should be the guiding principles for them and, and what is what right and what is wrong because if you turn on the, the news or, or Facebook or talk to 15 people out there, everyone's got their own opinion about what is right and true and good. How, how do I determine that? How do I determine a, a way of life? Where do I go for that kind of information? Turning to the world 
is the most disastrous thing we can do. Turn to the passage I gave you there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is another word for Satan, another title for him? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is there going to be between the temple of God and the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said this. God has said this about you, Oakland Drive Christian. You Christians who are sitting here hearing my voice right now. I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. And I will be their people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from the midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Remember that all the way back at the beginning of the sermon where I said God wants to have a relationship with his creation. He wants to walk with us. In fact, that's the whole vision of Revelation. At the end of Revelation is that God is in their midst, and we see him face to face. And he wipes away the tears from our eyes. And there's comfort and there is peace and there is security. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people. And if you call your name Christian, you are called to be his people. God wants to have a relationship with you. But if you are continually dipping your hands into the filth of this world, if you're continually looking at your neighbors or, 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 or your friends or the people who are around us and we're taking their ideas of what is right, their ideas of what we should do, if we are implementing that and copying copycatting the world, we have no relationship with God. It can't dwell together. What does Christ have with Satan? If you are not a Christian, you are under the authority of the evil one. It doesn't mean you're possessed or something, but you are under his authority, and you have the worldview of that ruler. What fellowship does the temple of the living God, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, have with those who are filled with a different kind of spirit, be it their own will, their own desires? So go out and be separate and touch no unclean thing, and then what? This glorious line, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so then Paul kind of concludes with this. So here it is. What should we do with that information? What should we do since we have these promises? Underline that. They're not words of advice. They're not helpful, hopeful tips. They are promises. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and of the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's beautiful. Now, it doesn't mean that you aren't to have friends out there. It doesn't mean that we're sort of reconstituting some sort of new Amish movement where we're going to go off by ourselves and not have anything to do with the world. What I am saying is that when people look at us, they should see something different. They should see you parent different. They should see you live different. They should see you spend time differently. They should see in you passion that is different than their passions. What are you passionate about? 
What do you want to talk about? What do you want to think about? What do you want to read books about? What do you want to discuss? What do you want to share with one another? When, when it's time to, to sit around the table and chat, are we chatting about the same things? Are we declaring the gracious and glorious nature of who God is and saying, what did you learn in the scriptures? Because if I sat at a table with somebody at Starbucks, just pull up a chair and sit down and say, what is God teaching you in the scriptures? They would say, are you insane? Leave me alone, right? But we should say to one another, let me tell you, Psalm 30 hit me like a ton of bricks this week. And I was brought to my knees at the glory and beauty of the living God. That should be the way we talk with one another. We should be fundamentally different. And when we aren't, it isn't because there's something wrong with the scriptures or with God. There's something wrong with us. So this isn't about where you live. This is about how you live. I want to notice one other thing here in verse chapter 9. Or chapter 8, verse 9. And that is, God acquiesces to their decision. They decide, we want a king, and God could thunder in their midst, couldn't he? He could thunder in their midst, and they would be like, okay, okay, we were joking. Just joking. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. He says, give them what they want. Now, God does this often. He says, give them what they want. But I, wanted, I noticed something really cool, and I kind of wanted to share this with you without belaboring it. Because, you know, what's a good sermon without revelation? So, um... This is from Genesis chapter 49. Now, this is the story that Genesis is wrapping up. And Joseph, all of the, the, the 11 brothers are, are there in Egypt. And, and Joseph, remember the story? Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, all that good stuff. Remember that? Joseph is over there. And, and they're all given a blessing. Each one of the houses are given a blessing. And a blessing in, in the Old Testament isn't just sort of like, hey, this is what I hope happens to you. It's kind of like a foreshadowing. It's sort of like a promise or foretelling or prophecy And this is what is said about Judah. The scepter, which is sort of your your ruling, you know, the little ball thing with the little spiky thing that those English guys would carry around. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the sign of ruling. The ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of this, all the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, which is a weird thing to do. And his vesture in the blood of grapes, which is an odd phrase. Um, I've never thought of wine as the blood of grapes, but I never want to drink it again. That sounds disgusting. Notice the similarities here to Revelation. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head are many diadems with fancy word for crowns. And he has a name which is written on him that no one but knows but himself. It is almost as if every knee is about to bow and he is about to have obedience of all the peoples. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and he is called the word of God. Now if you remember this is before any kings. Uh, we're seeing the, the building of the monarchy right here and right now in this text in First Samuel. Before that, there were no kings. And yet what God is planning to do through the kingship is to bring about David and through David and David's line, Jesus. And so even inside of the rebellion that we see, even inside this, this critical moment where these Israelites are making really poor decisions, we see God working out his plan of salvation to bring about the redemption of all people. Of course, there's a lot to go into here, but I just thought that was really cool, the similarities there. I never noticed that before. Notice the last line here in verse nine. Now, 
uh, obey their voice and give them what they want, but you shall solemnly warn them about the decision that they're making. And so uh, Samuel does. He warns them about the decision that they're making. And I'm not going to read it, but if you go through verses 10 and 18, Samuel kind of stands up and says, you guys are dumb. This is what happens when you get a king. Uh, A king is going to want an army, because what's a king without an army, right? Honestly. So now you have to give your sons up to serve in his army. And then he's going to want to be fancier than you, because what's a king without some fancy stuff, right? He's not a king, he's just the dude that lives next door to you. And so he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to bring them into his his house, and he's going to have them make perfume for him, because he's got to smell better than you, too. And then he's going to want cakes and all these other fancy things, and so he's going to have the ladies come in. And so instead of being at home with their children, serving their families and, and doing the things that, that, that they would have done there, now they're serving the king. And then he's going to need to feed his generals because generals are really hungry dudes. And so he's going to want to take some of your fields so that he can give them over to his, his generals as retirement plans and things like that. And then he's going to just want to tax you in general because what's a kingdom without taxes, right? And then, verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your flocks. And this important line, you shall be his slaves. Before this, you were a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, a slave to the one who judges justly and who can thunder in the midst of your enemies and who isn't going to tax you and who's not going to actually call your children to war because he's going to knock walls down and throw comets at people and do all kinds of crazy things that we see as he leads them into Israel. But instead, no, we, we prefer to have a king. And Samuel gives them all of this. He lays it out for them crystal clear, and they say, no thanks. They have hardened their heart to the will of God. And this is a warning to us, church, that you could hear sermons your whole life and never hear one sermon. He who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. Be very cautious about hardening your heart. If the word of God says it's true, it's just, it's right, listen to that word and don't harden your heart against the day of redemption. But I want to leave on a better note than, man, this king thing is going to stink. And so I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back to what God had intentionally planned for Israel. Remember this? He he wanted a people that were independent, you know, living in their own areas. And and, and God was sort of over them as king. And and he was blessing them. And and they didn't have that sort of, they they had that freedom. There, there There wasn't... wars and things they had to worry about. In fact, they, they, they had nothing like that. God just had this people and he says, obey my word and I will bless you abundantly. I'll defeat your enemies before you have nothing to worry about. But instead they said, I want a king. And so they build a kingdom. And all of those little tracts of independent land that God was blessing over and they had priests in each town, all that stuff hardens and becomes solidified and you have one great kingdom and, and now you have kingdom, kings over them who generally tend to be really terrible. And even into Jesus' day, this is the way it was. Rome over all of the world. And, and, and so, so in Jesus' day, 
there's a king, it's not even a Jewish king anymore, and there's a priest and there's a temple and it's all solidified and hardened and calcified and there's no spirit or move. In fact, from Malachi to, to Jesus, there's about four to five hundred years of nothing really happening, no voice from God, and then Jesus comes crying out and calling 12 disciples. Boy, 12 sounds really familiar to me, doesn't it? 12 disciples. And he gathers them together and he teaches them. In fact, he has this thing called the Sermon on the Mount where he lays out his law again and again and reconstitutes a covenant between them, not only in the word, but in his own blood and spirit. And he says just before he leaves, both in Matthew and in Acts, go into all the world. He takes that solidified, hardened people called Israel and he shatters them and he sends them as free people with his kingship, right? How often does the Bible call Jesus our king, our Lord, our savior? That right now the vision that God had back here, which was so small, locked in, locked into this one little tract of land right here has now spread throughout the entire world and you are the free people of his plan. It's amazing. I was just struck by that, that God had this great vision and the Israelites look like they've ruined it. And yet even that was a part of God's plan to bring about the salvation of the world so that every tribe and every language and every person could hear the gospel and have a chance to be be saved. And that's our call. Our call to share Jesus, our call to share the gospel, our call to not put ourselves underneath any other power but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to follow his word and to give him glory because God wants relationship with his people. He wants relationship with you so desperately, so deeply that he sent his own son to buy it and make it possible. And he wants the whole world to see it and so he calls you together to worship and glorify him so the world can look at you and know there is a God. Let's praise him as we stand and sing this final song for all that he has done for us, to us. Let us glorify him for his own actions, for who he is. Give him all your praise and all your worship.